This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. episode 104. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cis white dudes. No. Uh-uh. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist, allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all all of our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Eddie Lee Mosley, a black serial rapist and murderer active in Florida from 1973 to 1987. He had eight confirmed rape murder victims, but is suspected of many, many more. He is one of Florida's most prolific serial killers, and yet he was not well known and his victims got very little media coverage. Well, before we get into it, how you doing? I'm okay. Um, mm-hmm. I was exposed to COVID at work, as you know. Okay. So uh, now, now I'm quarantining. All right. I got tested over the weekend and it came back negative. Um, but I'll probably just get tested again this week just to make sure. And I'm feeling fine so far. But uh, yeah, it's been an interesting week. <laughs> Yikes! Yeah, on the third day of Christmas, my true love gave to me COVID nineteen. <laughs> One quarantine, <laughs> two toilet papers. I don't know. One vaccine, and the longest year of my entire life. Um. <laughs> But listen, my little sugar plum, I'm so glad you are feeling fine so far. Uh, I was worried at work because uh, on Friday I went by your desk, you know, to like say bye, have a nice weekend. Right. And also let you know that the muck rib was back and you were gone. <laughs> Everybody back there was gone. I was like, what? What happened? I just put my yep. headphones in and like got to work. And next thing you know, I'm the only one Everybody's on that side gone. of the building. It was it really was wild because when I got there, it was not like that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, me after a tough week where I had a I had a flat tire. Uh, I had a clogged toilet. I had kids who were vomiting, um, shitty internet connection, um, grumpy old whitey, virtual school, <laughs> all in the middle of a global <laughs> pandemic. I am not terrible. I am all right. Uh, but I do know that there's a lot of people out there who are struggling with everything from health to finances. And our hearts here at Fruit Loops HQ just go out to everybody out there who's having a hard time, especially during this time of year. Yeah. Um, and thoughts and prayers to everybody. Yes. Um, so now we're going to get into some listener letters. Oh, that's not very loud. Oh, hello, angels. Thank you. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, we need more of that in 2020. Yeah, anyway, we do. What, what's in the bag? 
Greg. We got a uh, review on Apple Podcasts from L4990. Ooh. <laughs> and they said, awesome. Great job covering lesser known cases, interrogating the intersection of violence and racism slash white supremacy is so important in such turbulent times. Sorry, y'all have so many butthurt white people leaving reviews. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's so sweet. But this review yeah. definitely makes up for it. Thank yeah. you very much. What else yeah. is in there? Thank you. Uh, we got a message from Carolyn who said, I just listened to episode 58, Las Pokianchis. I started it last night on my way home from work and picked up where I left off this morning. And it started at the perfect spot to make my morning. It was the part where Wendy asked Beth if she had ever been to a strip club. And oh my God, I laughed my ass off at that whole banter. And when Wendy said she had to drive herself to the seat section oh my god it was a nightmare <laughs> beth i do love your laugh but wendy have you taken beth to the strip club yet not yet as soon as this damn quarantine is over woo yeah. i hope you're ready beth i hope i think you are i ready. think i'm gonna need a strip club at that point hell yeah all, you know all bets are off <laughs> <laughs> Carolyn continues to say, I love your podcast. I found it because I wanted to hear your episode on the baseline killer. One of his victims was my friend's sister. Oh, my God. And goodness. I'm wow. sorry to hear that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. She says, I'm from the South Side as well, born and raised. As a matter of fact, my mom still lives in South Phoenix in the house we moved into when I was one years old. And I'm now 52 years old. Hey. Yeah. I hope you gals have a fantastic day and weekend. Keep up the great work. I really enjoy your podcast, Carolyn. And thank Whoa. you, Carolyn, thank so much you. for <laughs> Yeah. Ooh, that was a loud one. But thank you. That's for you and for <laughs> South Phoenix. Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, we got some new patrons, uh, Patricia M., Kamisha G., and Jennifer S. Um, so here are tunes. I hope you don't hate them, but if you do, there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> so, and Patricia will be a very special patron for me. Yeah. <laughs> and then this next one. Summertime and the living's easy. Beth is on the microphone with Camisa G. All people in the dance <laughs> will agree that we're well qualified to represent the true crime beat. Eat la 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 wee while everybody right into the rhythm, it gets hotter. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, but not leastly, I like the way you work it. Go, Jennifer. I got to bag it up, bag it up, girl. Uh, so that is for y'all. Thank you so much for supporting our show. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Everybody for listening. Now, Beth, remind us who we are speaking about today. Today we're discussing the case of Eddie Lee Mosley, a Floridian serial killer and rapist. This case has also been called the Broward County Miscarriage of Justice because Mosley managed to slip through the hands of justice for 15 years. Mm. And in that time, he was responsible for the sexual assaults and murders of somewhere between eight to 100 plus black women and girls. And two innocent black men were wrongfully convicted for some of those rapes and murders. This will be a two-parter because there's just so much to the story. So, 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 so much. It's the yeah. hardiest of cases. Not as hardy as uh, at the Atlanta Child's murder one. Yeah, Atlanta. Boy, oh boy, <laughs> this is a close second. So now we're going to get is. into some stats. All right, y'all. Eddie Lee Mosley is a black American serial killer and rapist. He used a fake name sometimes and called himself Jesse. People in the neighborhood called him, quote, rape man, end quote. That can't be good. <laughs> no, and it certainly says a lot about what he's up to. Am I right? Yeah, uh, yeah. He was born on March 31st, 1947. His crimes took place in Fort Lauderdale, Florida from 1973 to 87. DNA linked him to eight rape homicides between that time, and he remains a suspect in at least nine other rape homicides and at least 
a dozen rapes uh, and attempted rapes. Police speculate he's responsible for 40 to over 100 rape and murders. They were all black women and girls with lives that mattered and people that loved them. Despite media reports, none of his victims were proven to be involved in crime or any shady or nefarious backgrounds. Um, But they like to do that when it's victims of color. Mm -hmm. Anyway. His MO was to lure his victims to a vacant area or lot, then rape and strangle them. Word on the street from some of the surviving rape victims is that he was impotent. And some reported that during the attack, a gun, a knife, or scissors were brandished. His victims that we know of, the confirmed ones, again, these were all black women and girls. And let's speak their names. Rest in power, Queens. Emma Cook, 54 years old. Teresa Giles, 22 Sonia Marion, 13, Veda Turner, 34, Chandra Whitehead, 8, Terry Jean Cummings, 21, Nahomia Gamble, 15, and Loretta Young-Brown was 29. Now, there are some unconfirmed and possible Mosley victims that we wanted to include. Just our research revealed these names. Um, And so uh, we are going to speak them. Thelma Bell, Ernestine German, Kathy Moore. Ida Ingalls, Letha Williams, Susan Boyton, Jeanette Rogers, Brenda Carter, Arnett Tukes, Gloria Irving, Geraldine Barfield, and uh, Sandra Lowe, who sadly was Loretta Young Brown's sister. That's that's really sad. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Two murders in a in, in one, uh, fam- one family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, this case is wild for numerous reasons. At one point, he was found innocent by a jury for reason of insanity and remanded to an institution for just five years, and eventually was released. When he was apprehended again, he was found incompetent to stand trial. Uh, committed to psychiatric institution in 1988, Mosley died on May 25th, 2020, in a mental institution. As Beth mentioned, this case has been called the Broward County Miscarriage of Justice. Jerry Frank Townsend and Frank Lee Smith were also victims because they were two black men with mental disabilities slash deficits who, due to no fault of their own, they were born black, they were born poor, and were unable to obtain good educations. And for those reasons, they were unable to adequately defend themselves within the justice system. Uh, they were wrongfully convicted and imprisoned for Mosley, Mosley's crimes. One of them actually died on death row. Uh, Doug Evans is the black officer who suspected Mosley the whole time, and he never wavered from that. So now we're yeah. going to get even closer to getting into the story and dive into the setting. Take us there, Beth. The setting is Fort Lauderdale, Florida in the 1970s. Prior to the European invasion, Fort Lauderdale was the home to the Seminole. The earliest recorded black settlers in Broward County migrated from Georgia, South Carolina, and the Bahamas. Many were railroad workers who helped build a rail extension from the north in 1896, who settled in shanties along the railroad tracks. After the tracks and stations were completed, many remained. At the time of Fort Lauderdale's incorporation as a city in 1911, it had a recorded population of only 150 people. Ooh, teeny tiny town. Yeah. Uh, in the 1920s, when the community of Liberia was created for Bahamian and African-American workers when Hollywood, Florida was being developed, some homes constructed in Bahamian style still remain. By 1940, Fort Lauderdale had a population of 18,000. Few of the suburban cities which surround it today had been formed. Some of the residents have lived there for generations. Some have extended families in the Seminole Indian community. Like in many other places that were segregated, a close-knit Black community developed to provide living essentials, a Black church, newspaper, shops, theater, restaurants, and professional services. Dania Beach, just south of Fort Lauderdale, was once a farming community that employed many Black workers. Yeah, it's like, uh, fine, white people, you don't want us to live near you? We're good. Yeah, we'll we're going to form our own well, here community. We go. Yep. Uh, hope you don't bomb it uh, in 19... 19- <laughs> because they have done I'm, I'm laughing because I don't know what else to do. Yeah, sorry. That was horrible, but yeah. But yeah. yeah it, it, it happens. Look it yeah. up. Uh, in 1959, Fidel Castro came to power in Cuba as a communist dictatorship. America's federal government leaders were terrified. Um, They feared his influence only 90 miles from Florida. Troop 
level at Homestead Air Force Base near Miami was increased and Cuban refugees were welcomed into what were once white-only districts in greater Miami. Since the interstate highway system was also built for defense purposes, which I I didn't know, but now I know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thanks, Fruit Loops. (laughs) Yeah. The I-95 highway and interchange was quickly expanded throughout Miami's Overtown Black community without mitigating measures to preserve its balance of low to middle income residents. Surprise! Ooh, uh (laughs) uh-oh. Yeah, not a surprise. Yeah. (laughs) Coinciding with those events, Broward County, where Fort Lauderdale is located, attracted a large number of defense contracts. This accelerated Black middle-class flight from Miami-Dade County to Broward County, where Fort Lauderdale sits. Mm, interesting. Uh, when you said Miami Overtown, I just couldn't help but think of Ray Charles's song. I got a woman way over town that digs on me. You know, I, I don't know. That I wonder one. if that's what he's Sorry. talking about. Overtown <laughs> and the black be. community. Yeah. Somebody tell be. us. Anyway, just east of Dania Beach, John Lloyd Beach State Park was home to the once segregated and hard to reach colored beach. Before desegregation, black South Floridians had to drive from Palm Beach and Miami to use Fort Lauderdale's beaches. By 1946, Broward County acquired a barrier island site designated as a colored only beach and then made the other beaches off limits and promised to make the colored only beach accessible. But of course, they never did. Mm. So black residents and visitors were still limited from using it. The only way to access the colored only beach was by ferry. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download. American Vigilante, now. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. Um, you can imagine. That sounds yeah, so difficult ridiculous. so unnecessary. But ridiculous. I gotta say, yeah. this is what, you know, our, our shout out to our play cousins over at Wild Black. Um, they always ask their guests, like, what's the what's the thing you love the most about being black? And it's like in everybody always says some version of in spite of all the efforts America has made to try to kill us or um, oppress us. We somehow get, you know, are able to still survive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and, anyway. and, and in some cases thrive. Yeah, there you go. Um, activist and business owner Eula Johnson became the key figure in fighting for equality on South Florida beaches. Shout out to Eula. Some uh, some people have called her the Rosa Parks of South Florida. Johnson planned wade-ins at Flor- Fort Lauderdale Beach during the summer of 1961, even when the Ku Klux Klan threatened to ambush the protests. Johnson became the regional president of the NAACP in 1958. On July 4th, 1961, the first of a series of wade-ins by black residents took place on the all-white beach at Las Olas Boulevard. Organized by Eula Johnson and physician Dr. Von D. Mizell, the event took aim at the segregation that had confined the county's black residents to a single 
difficult to reach strip of sand south of Port Everglades. Uh oh. Okay. The, they loaded some teenagers in their cars and they drove them to the beach. They parked their cars and walked on the beach, onto the beach. White people started to crowd around them and they just kept walking towards the water and the crowd parted. According to Tony Thompson, a historian at the Old Dillard Museum in Fort Lauderdale, quote, there was a political newspaper publisher named Gore who called her and asked her to stop because white people did not want to swim with the colored people and that he would pay her money and give her access to things other colored people did not have if she would cooperate, unquote. That is all kinds of fucked up. Sickening. Keep your money. Don't need it. I'm here for the people. Fuck off. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Johnson did not give in to the offer and continued her fight. Amen. Uh, She planned another wait in on July 23rd, but she got a tip that the KKK had plans to disrupt the protest. She called the FBI. She was smart. Thompson said she went on with the protest, but tensions were high. Interesting that Johnson called the FBI for protection when the FBI has a pretty well-documented history of meddling with or silencing black activists and leaders like Fred Hampton, whose 51 year anniversary of his death was just last week, or Billie Holiday, or even MLK had his phone tapped. The FBI has is always meddling in black people's affairs. That's a bad history, yeah. Very bad history. So that's um, interesting that they were really helpful. She found them helpful. Yeah. Quote, there were FBI agents on the roofs of the hotels on the beach and in the boats in the water. There was one colored woman arrested, and that was the only real incident, unquote, Thompson explained. The KKK did show up with axe handles, but the police kept them at bay. Whew, man, just because people wanted to go swimming. Swimming, yeah. Uh, Yeah, Johnson held several more wait-ins afterward until the city of Fort Lauderdale filed a lawsuit against her claiming that she was causing chaos and becoming a public nuisance. Uh, The case went to a federal judge who sided with Johnson. Ah, victory! (laughs) Quote, the federal courts decided that since colored people paid taxes just like everybody else, they deserve to use public beaches just like any other citizen, said Thompson. The former colored-only beach is now named in the activist's honor, the Dr. Von D. Meisel Eula Johnson State Park. Man, the the courts don't always get it right, but when they do, it is so nice. It's nice, uh, yeah. Yeah. Today, Greater Fort Lauderdale is getting close to being number one in diversity among U.S. metro areas. Can I live there? Uh, over 120 countries are represented and 60 languages spoken with Spanish, wow. French, Haitian, Creole, and Portuguese heading uh, the list. Cultures of African descent comprise nearly a third of the population, including Jamaicans, Trinidadians, Haitians, and Afro-Latinx, with sizable populations of residents from Puerto Rico, Cuba, Dominican Republic, and Brazil. That sounds amazing. I know. I really want to live there. Um, (laughs) uh, So now we're going to get into Mosley's early life. What do you got, Beth? Eddie Mosley was born on March 31st, 1947, as the third of 10 children of a Fort Lauderdale family. Eddie Mosley's mother, Willie May, has said that she knew something was wrong when he was born. There were complications during his delivery, and Eddie didn't cry at birth, like most babies. And Mm -hmm. I I wonder if uh, he was oxygen-deprived. Yeah. Um, when when getting to the end of the story, that makes a lot. A lot of sense, Yeah. But I want <laughs> welcome to Culture Corner. Um, I wonder <laughs> if this black mother was able to have her black children in a hospital or if the child was born at home, like if she had access right. to um, care, like adequate care to birth her children. Um, yeah. Anyway, the complications during his birth later led to him developing an acute respiratory disease as a child, causing him a slew of issues. In addition, from an early age, he began to show signs of an intellectual disability and mental instability. He had problems learning and suffered from anterograde amnesia, because of which he repeated his second year of elementary school several times. Mosley had behavioral issues in school, and in 1960, at the age of 13, Eddie was forced to leave school for good as a third grade student. He was dropped from the public school system because he, quote, could not get along with others and 
acted in the severely defective range, unquote, according to reports from Eddie Lee Mosley's public mm. school records. And I, I just think that's uh, disgusting that they just like, no, nope, can't teach this kid anymore. Yeah, that, I out. think that would be entirely unacceptable today. Um, but his mother did yeah. have um, 10 kids, right? Um, they were very poor. Right. And so I just wonder what resources could have been available to them at that time. Yeah, I don't know what the public schools had back then. I think uh, nowadays he would be in special uh-huh. education, yeah. but I, I don't know what they would what yeah. they did back then. It just seems like uh, they just yeah. threw him away. Yeah, there's nothing we can do, so yeah, can't stay here. Yeah, goodbye. Uh, during his yeah. teenage years, he lived in poor conditions and began to show signs of an antisocial personality. He was forced to engage in low-skilled labor, working a variety of manual labor jobs. He eventually became a junk man. His words, that's what he called himself, collecting scrap and usable, repairable items, then selling the items at a profit to other people in scrapyards. Hell of a hustle, if you ask me. Yeah. Beginning in 1965, he was arrested nine different times on varying charges, including indecent behavior, robbery, assault, attempted rape and murder, for which he spent five and a half years in prison and almost six in various psychiatric wards. Much later in 1999, Mosley's intelligence was quantified when he scored 54 on an IQ test. going to dive into the timeline. Now, between November 1971 and July 1973, almost 150 rapes of girls and women were recorded in the northwestern part of Fort Lauderdale. 150. 150. Uh-huh. That's insane. That's quite a that bit to wrap insane. your head around in two yeah. and a half years. <laughs> yeah. Not That's quite nuts. three. Yeah. Um, I'm flabbergasted. In all cases, the perpetrator was described as a young, tall, black man with an athletic build and scar on his left cheek, whom, under the threat of physical violence, lured them to vacant lots and other isolated areas where they were choked and raped. Media reports at the time referred to many of the victims who were all black as, quote, prostitutes or unwanted children, unquote, Mm. when in fact most were attending school and or had jobs and came from good families. Mosley did not target sex workers in particular. Hey, but what do I tell you? Every week that starts with the R and ends with the racism, and that's what the news is very good at doing. Um, Mosley's, especially back then. Oh, yes. Mosley's MO also did not include collecting so called trophies from his crimes. However, Mosley's surviving victims indicated that his final act was usually to take whatever money the victim may have had on them. There is an author on Facebook whose page is called Nahomia Gamble, a nonfiction work in progress. It contains a wealth of information that we mind about the crimes and the victims, and we want to give credit where credit is due. The author writes about the rape victims, but does not want to identify them by name, so uses colors for the victims instead of a name. Yeah, it, there was a wealth of information yes. on that page. Yes. And actually, uh, it was it was so that it was it was almost overwhelming. Like I was like, I don't know if we if we'll be able to cover this. <laughs> this just might be another uh, who another um, behemoth of a case, but definitely yeah, worth yeah. Um, telling the story as best as we can. And um, please check out that Facebook page for more. Yeah, um, many of the stories are similar in nature. Often the victim was walking down the street by herself late at night. The culprit approached the victim by asking her about drugs and the culprit subdued his victim by choking her and or grabbing her by the neck. The culprit threatened to use a weapon. The actual rape occurred in a dark, untended and overgrown vacant lot. The culprit had impotent issues and after the attack, the culprit sought the victim's purse. The first victim is referred to as victim blue. 
On February 22, 1973, in the evening, victim Blue left her home and began walking to the Downbeat Club to meet her sister. The Downbeat Club was a nightclub that was part of the so-called Chitlin Circuit of the segregated South of the 1950s and 60s. So uh, the Chitlin Circuit was at um, like a bunch of clubs where Black performers would go play? Yes, exactly. Black performers, Black okay. comedians, singers, dancers. However, it's not. it wasn't just limited to the 50s and 60s, and it wasn't just limited to the South. Okay. There are comedians like Eddie Murphy um, and uh, performers like, um, I can't think of anybody, but there was still a Chitlin circuit in the 70s and 80s oh, wow. um, and maybe even the 90s before like black people started getting actual shows on TV and things like that. Yeah. Um, wow. Mosley grabbed her arm from behind and dragged her into the bushes. Mosley told victim Blue that he had a knife, that he had just gotten out of prison and that this was one thing he needed more than anything else. The rape itself lasted at least 15 to 20 minutes. After the rape, Mosley called victim Blue a whore and told her that she wouldn't mind what just happened. He then helped her to find her purse in the dark, pocketed the $2.50 it contained, and ran off into the night. Victim Blue described her attacker as being the being about 23 years old, standing six foot one, 150 pounds with a thin build and short afro, and either a small birthmark or burn scar about one inch in diameter on the left cheek. Very descriptive. Shout out to you, Victim Blue. Uh, he was described as wearing a light blue shirt with long sleeves, navy blue pants, high top boots with laces, and a white worker's helmet. There are about 12 other stories like this on the Nahomia Gamble Facebook page. Each victim assigned a different color, and the attacks are all very similar. Many of them picked Mosley out of lineups, but the state declined to file charges for one reason or another. We won't uh, read you all of the stories, but uh, we encourage you to go to that Facebook page and, and read them. Absolutely. On Sunday, July 8th, 1973, Veta Turner was 34 years old, a black woman, walked home alone after attending a gospel concert at Dillard High School that evening. She was wearing a dress with a white bodice and a bright red skirt for the concert. To get to her house, Veta had to walk past Mosley's home and walk past a vacant lot next to the Blue Goose Bar, where a woman had been raped three months earlier. Mosley likely attacked Veta Turner near her front door, wrapping his arm around her neck and then he dragged her around to the side of the house, then to a dirt road and an overgrown area. During the struggle, she lost her right shoe. Neighbors reported hearing a dog barking and a woman hollering late that night, but no one actually saw anything. Veta's 44-year-old boyfriend, Felton Shorty Lawton, called the police at 1 a.m. after Veta didn't return home. The next day, Veta's brother, Willie and Shorty, searched for her. At around 3 p.m., Willie found his sister's bright red skirt among the weeds. Her wallet was never found. Shorty Lawton was suspected by police and was not cleared of her murder until the DNA match with Mosley was made decades later. On July 19, 1973, 15-year-old Nahomia Gamble was last seen. Some say she was seen in her home. Others reported she was seen at Joe's Tavern near her home. But in any case, her body was discovered the next day, abandoned in a vacant lot across the street from a church. She had been raped and strangled. Other than the light from the church, the area was completely dark after sunset because Florida power and light was slow to go into poor black neighborhoods to repair the streetlights. Mm. That is a big, fat shame. Um, Shitty. Yeah, extremely. Um, Naomi and Sandals and Wig were removed and thrown aside at some point, indicating that she resisted Mosley. Near Naomi's body, a glass bottle was left with a pair of underwear lying on top of the bottle. There is a photograph of the bottle somewhere and panties, but the uh, police never took the items into evidence. So, Ugh, great job. Trash. Yeah. Yeah. The local newspapers and police spelled Nahomia's name wrong. They uh, called her Naomi mm. instead of Nahomia mm -hmm. and described her as a prostitute, yeah. even though she was not. Right. A police memo said she was, quote, very promiscuous. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Victim blame much? Right. Yeah. <sighs> it's awful. I, I don't she know what else to say. Years old. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm getting heated just reading this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just think that's extremely fucked 
up. Um, Very fucked up. Make those claims and not have enough evidence to back it up. And I guarantee that this um, we'll get into the sheriff's office later. But they did a really poor job at investigating cases and just picked whatever you know fit their narrative and this right. label for this young um, they didn't victim. give a shit yeah basically yeah they didn't care mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. uh Nahomia was survived by her uncle elijah mcfadden journalists made no attempt to interview Nahomia's uncle to learn more about her yeah strike two <laughs> um yeah. so uh elijah sunny boy mcfadden was a cement finisher former restaurateur occasional bolita player and a community organizer um whenever i see those words i think of like barack obama or somebody you know, yeah he's a community yeah. organizer uh he was determined to find Naomi's murder murderer he organized community meetings and conducted his own investigation. Mosley was arrested on July 23rd, 1973, when a Detective Smith drove with three rape victims in his police car. One of the women recognized him and Smith swung the car around, but then Mosley slipped away into an alley. When Mosley was seen again, he was wearing a pair of panties on his head. When I first read this, I was like, wait, he just had a stocking cap over his head? Which for <laughs> black people isn't weird. I sleep with a stocking right. cap on my head almost every night. So I was like, yeah, racism, right? But uh, it sounds like it was actually really panties. Actually wearing yeah, so, panties, yeah. Uh, I will simmer down now. <laughs> when you were talking about the panties on his head, it made me think of Raising Arizona. Have you ever seen that movie? No, but people say I should. <laughs> oh my God, it's so funny. Okay. One of the characters is a, a robber mm-hmm. and uh, he puts pantyhose on his head instead of like one leg of the stocking uh-huh. tied. Uh-huh. He just puts pantyhose on his head. So he's got like the legs like hanging down. Oh, oh, well, that's how I I sleep with it on my head. With the legs hanging down? Yeah. And then I both legs. Yeah. I wrap them around so it stays in place and my hair edges laid in the morning. So it's it's like pantyhose, like the whole panty. Yeah. I mean, I don't wear them. You go to Walgreens, you get your three dollar pack of pantyhose when you can't find your silk rag to wrap your hair. And then you, you know, moisturize your hair. You put in the oils and uh, lay lay the edges down, lay the hair down. And then you um, put the stocking cap over your head and uh, wrap it up. Okay. Done and done. I'm telling okay. you. Look, come on. My, where are my black people listening? My 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 BIPOC women with um you know uh different patterned hair. Come on, f- c- help me out here. Beth thinks I'm crazy. No, I'm just thinking of the the movie. Oh yeah, I can. And then he's robbing a store with these pantyhose over his face. Uh huh. And uh, a guy says, "Son, you got a panty on your." That's what it made me think of. I am going to have to Google this scene because I feel like we're not even speaking the same language language. right now. Yeah, I know. Like, what? Yeah. (laughs) What are you talking about, white lady? And they're like, what is is this? (laughs) Okay, where are we? Uh, He was ordered to halt and drop the cane. Smith fired a warning shot over Mosley's head. Then he fell to the ground and officers were able to apprehend him. A photo lineup was generated and more than 40 female rape victims identified Mosley as their attacker. Smith is Fort Lauderdale PD, right? He's not with the county sheriff. During this period, Mosley was also the prime suspect in the rape murders of two black girls in Fort Lauderdale, killed in early 1973. But since there was not enough evidence, he was only charged with three assaults with subsequent rape. However, following a mental evaluation, he was found to be insane and was ordered into involuntary commitment at the Florida State Hospital, where he spent five years. During his imprisonment, no other similar rapes or murders were recorded. Side note, between 1973 and 87, Mosley was in police or state custody for a total of nine years. So, After five years of treatment with psychotropic drugs, therapists and doctors decided that Eddie Mosley no longer needed hospitalization. Mm. On February 1st, 1979, he was transferred to South Florida State Hospital in Pembroke Pines, where, according to a staff psychiatrist, Mosley demonstrated exceptional behavior. Yeah, but he raped people. I know. A lot of people. (laughs) A lot. Yeah, and I just... You know, 
I don't know what it is. I think back then um, they didn't really understand sexual crimes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, we're when we know better, we do better. It's just this yeah. is not good. No. So five months later, in early June of 1979, Mosley was discharged with the understanding that he would continue to take his medication and keep monthly appointments at the Henderson Mental Health Clinic in southwest Fort Lauderdale. After his release, Mosley moved back into his parents' house. Over the next seven months, seven young girls were found raped and murdered in the area. All of the murders were committed in the vicinity of Mosley's home, and he quickly became the prime suspect. In fact, in the northwest Fort Lauderdale neighborhood where he lived, he was known as the Rape Man, as we mentioned earlier. Mm. His sexual crimes were so widely known that parents warned their daughters to avoid him, if possible. And I get why um, the the if possible is really important because his home was um, there's like a murder map on that Facebook page. But his home is, you know, by the by all the schools. Um, right. It's on the way to everybody's work and all the, you know, bars and stuff. It's like it's almost like his house was unavoidable. Like right there. Yeah. Unavoidable. Yeah. Um, on July 27th, 1979, 13 year old Sonia Marion was raped and murdered in broad daylight at a school. Sonia was the youngest of six children and lived with her family. She was reportedly attending either a summer school or summer lunch program, either at Dillard High School or Dillard Elementary School. She was last seen alive about 8 a.m. on Friday, walking towards the school property, which was not too far from her house. It also happened to be across the street from Mosley's house, where he lived with his parents after his release from state custody. At 1025 that morning, an off-duty Fort Lauderdale Police Department officer working at the high school was alerted to the discovery of Sonia's body. She was found inside what is described as a two-story concrete block tower next to the athletic field lying on the dirt floor. She'd been raped and bludgeoned to death with a concrete cinder block. The rape and murder of 13-year-old Sonia Marion represented a turning point in the media coverage of Mosley's crimes. Few, if any, details of the crime appear to have been withheld by the FLPD, and reporters for the Fort Lauderdale News not only reported the murder, but published a photo of Sonia, interviewed her mother, and sent a reporter to cover her funeral service several days later. So for for some reason... um, they had sympathy for this uh, victim when they did not for uh, Nahomia Gamble. Um, maybe we'll talk about this um, in part two because we're splitting this up. But Fort Lauderdale PD did um and and the Fort Lauderdale News did a better job at um, investigating this case than the, than the, county, sheriff's, the office. sheriff's office. That's what I was trying to point out earlier. Okay, um, but uh. Yeah, so uh, I think that's why this is a turning point because the Fort La- Lauderdale PD they got, got involved. involved. Yeah. Um, on August 2nd, 1979, Terry Jean Cummings, a 21 year old black woman living with her family near Dillard High School, was murdered. She worked at a gas station and a McDonald's to earn money for her nursing degree. She had four brothers and three sisters. That day, Terry left home early to walk to the bus stop for her morning shift at McDonald's because her car was in the shop. At 6.30 a.m., a neighbor found Terry's purse on the side of the road. And at 11 a.m., Terry's body was found by one of her younger brothers inside of a burned-out house near the home where she lived with her family. In 1979, Jerry Townsend, a black man, was arrested down in Miami on some type of sex offense and brought up to Broward County, based either on incriminating statements he was making himself or his resemblance to a circulating suspect sketch. Not all black people look alike, everybody. Townsend suffered from mental disabilities and had the mental capacity of an eight-year-old. Broward Sheriff's Office Detective Tony Fantagrassi then coerced a false confession from Jerry Frank Townsend to the 1973 rape and murder of Nahomia Gamble. The confessions were largely the consequence of Townsend wanting to please the authority figures, which is a common adaptive practice by someone with his mental capacities. Mm. 
Um, just this part just makes me so upset. Jerry Frank Townsend yeah. confessed to 23 murders of young girls and women all over the country. Detective Doug Evans, one of the first black officers hired by the Fort Lauderdale Police Department, didn't buy it. Um, he didn't buy what the Broward County Sheriff's Office uh, and uh, that Detective Tony Fantigrassi were, were selling. Um, everybody thought that was it, that they had their man when they tagged Townsend, Evans recalled. All I could say was that that if you're right, these bodies will cease to come. If you're wrong, they'll keep turning up. Detective Doug Evans was convinced in the late 1970s that Mosley was the murderer, but his belief was not shared. Instead, after several years of tracking Mosley, the detective gained a reputation as being obsessed. Well, uh, but he was right. Uh, so <laughs> shout out to that guy. Um, yeah. Townsend was arrested in September, but the killing did not stop. During the next four months, three more bodies of young black women uh, were found in vacant lots near Mosley's home, victims of rape and strangulation. One of the victims, Arnett Tooks, was the cousin of Detective Doug Evans. Investigators were told of Mosley's criminal history and attempted to question him, but Mosley's family refused to let him talk, and soon after, they sent him to Lakeland to stay with his grandfather. Not long after he got there, he became the prime suspect in the disappearances of two girls, hmm. Ida Eagles and Letha Mae Williams, who went missing shortly after his arrival. Now, it's interesting how his family tried to protect him, from right. the law, but um, it didn't help anyone. Um, it just yeah. made things worse. I I, I right. get how it would be really, really hard to turn in a loved one. A lot of times when they do that, they don't believe that the loved one is guilty. Mm -hmm. And they may have thought that the police were harassing him. I don't right. Know. And I mean, what, 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 why would a black, a black family trust the police in the first place? Right. There's a lot exactly. of reason not to. But then at the same time, somebody in your community, the, all the women and girls in your community and their families are also hurting at the hands of whoever is doing this, right? So yeah. I guess I guess I can kind of see how his family might have been in a pickle, but yeah, or or just in their own bubble where they didn't think that he was guilty. Yeah. Who knows? Um, police interviewed neighbors who said that they saw a man fitting Mosley's description, chasing a black woman down the street as she was screaming for help. Mosley was interrogated, but then released because the victim's bodies couldn't be located. After being questioned by police, his grandfather sent Mosley back to Fort Lauderdale. There, on April 12, 1980, he was arrested while attempting to rape a young girl. He was found guilty and sentenced to 15 years. Soon after his arrival at the jail, Mosley was made the houseman, a.k.a. an inmate trustee of C-Module, which houses the county's most violent, dangerous, and mentally ill criminals. Mosley became a houseman, says Dr. John Spencer, administrator for the jail's forensic unit because, quote, he was a big guy and he was fearless. He did whatever was asked of him without asking back, unquote. While incarcerated at the Broward County Jail, Mosley exhibited very aggressive behavior, often physically and sexually harassing other prisoners. One of his former cellmates has vivid, frightening memories of Mosley. Quote, he would try to make the newer detainees have sex with him, says Claude Brooks, who spent five days with Mosley in a Pompano Beach cell. Quote, he would grab them by their throat and lift them up off the ground and make them do things that I didn't think was right. End quote. Yikes. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. While Mosley was in prison, the skeletal remains of Ida Eagles and Letha Mae Williams were discovered near Lakeland. They had been raped and strangled. Detective Doug Evans, the one guy who always believed Mosley was guilty, mm -hmm. he's been quoted as saying, Ain't no way in hell if the investigations had been carried out the way they should have been, Mosley would have been walking the streets. Bodies were falling like flies in 1979. If this had happened in a white middle class neighborhood, Mosley would have been history after two murders, unquote. Where is the lie? I don't see it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All sounds true to me. Uh, yeah. 
by the way, I love stories where like the BIPOC person is the hero. You know what I mean? Or yeah, you know, like yeah. comes comes out at the end to like like with the truth. Yeah, you know what, Hollywood? Here's another yeah. one for you. Yeah, I'm telling with you. The, Doug Evans is the hero. Stop playing with us, Netflix. Uh- <laughs> Give us something really That's good. Right. A true crime story <laughs> with a black cop hero. Come on now. I'm telling you. Plus, the holidays are like here and I am sick of Netflix. Like, I feel like I've watched everything on it. <laughs> everything. Yeah. yeah. I, I spend more time looking for something to watch than I do watching things. Come on now. Honestly. Netflix. Come on. Netflix. Better... I'm down to like Hallmark. <laughs> I know. I'm ready to go to life. Holiday movies. Don't I'm get... like, I want to kill myself. Come on. <laughs> I can't take it anymore. I guess I'll watch Hulu with commercials. Fine. <laughs> Fuck my life. <laughs> <laughs> We're just like holding each other like crying with boxes <laughs> oh what are we gonna do um well there's always plenty of podcasts y'all uh including that's this true one. um okay at the time mostly was considered a suspect by the broward sheriff's office for the murders committed following his release from the mental hospital but once bso detectives mark schlein and tony fantagrassi uh, found that Townsend was willing to confess to the murders, which he did not commit. I repeat, did not commit in exchange for burgers and cigarettes. They completely forgot about Mosley as a suspect. Well, I've got something for those guys. <laughs> is it a bag of dicks? It is all of the bag of dicks. You can eat a big bag of dicks, eat a big old bag of dicks, eat a big old bag of dicks, eat a bag of dicks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. At trial, Schlein and Fantagrassi recounted how they followed Townsend to crime scenes, including the Dillard High School athletic field where 13-year-old Sonia Marion was raped and murdered. Schlein also testified Townsend identified the weapon he used to kill the teenager, a cinder block. They also claimed that he took them to the scene of Terry Cummings' murder and described what happened. Um, gosh, there is a real, I've shouted this out before, a really, really great podcast I'm listening to called Wrongful Convictions. And they talk about false confessions. And a lot of people, especially in the 70s and 80s, had this mentality like, why on earth would anybody confess to a crime if they didn't do it? Uh, but there are numerous reasons. Lots of people do. Yeah, yeah. Lots of people do. But once it's done like it's there's no going back no going back and another problematic element of our justice system is these prosecutors and um law enforcement who get a bee in their bonnet on a theory of a case and ignore logic and evidence pointing to other um more logical tunnel vision yeah it's um there's 20,000 people who are wrongfully convicted in prison right now. And this is one of the reasons why poor investigative policing. Um, Townsend could not have known any details from the crime scene attributed to him by Schlein and Fantagrassi because DNA tests would later prove conclusively that he did not kill Sonia Marion or Terry Cummings. The only reason Townsend confessed was due to his mental disabilities because of head injuries he suffered as a child, lack of economic resources, and poor education. At trial, Fantagrassi told Townsend's defense lawyer under cross-examination that Detective Doug Evans had a, quote, irrational vengeance, unquote, against Mosley. Quote, he would pursue him to no end. Anytime any sort of homicide investigation broke out, he wanted us to check out Eddie Lee Mosley, said Fantagrassi. And as a precaution, when I was investigating the 79 cases, I did just that. I did check Eddie Lee Mosley. I discarded him as a suspect. Garbage. Yeah, have a seat, Fantagrassi. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you have been relieved of your duty, sir. Uh, I don't know. I don't even know if he's alive. I really don't know at the moment but um it, i i hope <laughs> i hope uh that his record is examined um because what he's done to townsend so right. far at this point in the story is uh deplorable awful uh, yeah and unfortunately in 1980 townsend was convicted of the brutal rape and murders of six women and girls including 15 year old nehomia gamble he was sentenced to life in prison. Heartbreakingly, he told the judge, quote, what I really want to know is how much time do you get on life? 
I want to do my time and get back out there. I have a wife and two kids, end quote. And so he didn't even understand what was happening to him. Yeah, that that um, made me tear up. Yeah, when it's, I read dev- that. it's devastating. Um, yeah. And it just uh, me as a as a black as a black woman and a mother, um, I uh, my fear is how easily the system can sweep you up and like chew you up and do spit this, you out yeah. into a cell and, and do this to you. It's my my nightmare. Yeah, yeah. I have I have uh, I actually have nightmares about that happening to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know what? That's a good point is it can happen to anyone. I mean, yeah, in America, um, regardless of your race, although it's more likely to happen to some of us more than others. But yeah, it is. Right. It just it happens. And it's it's terrifying. Yeah. So yeah. I feel you, Beth. In the meantime, Mosley's public defender, Steve Michelson, appealed his conviction of rape on the grounds that Mosley's representation at the 1980 trial was inadequate because his attorney should have pursued a plea of insanity. As part of the appeal, Mosley was examined by several court-appointed psychiatrists with conflicting results. Well, among the things they said was his intelligence is, quote, somewhat below normal, end quote. He is, quote, mentally defective, end quote, but competent to stand trial. And he has, quote, significant intellectual defects and mental retardation. Their word, not mine, end quote. He is, quote, incompetent, has been so since early childhood and will be so for the foreseeable future, end quote. And on November 15th, 1983, Mosley became a free man once again when his attorney won a retrial on appeal and negotiated a reduced sentence. Since he had already served nearly three and a half years, time was subtracted from the new sentence and he was released within a week. Oh, my God. So so you might be pulling your hair out, but I am sorry. This is where we are going to take a break (laughs) and we will continue the story for you all next week. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence and give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Maholovic, And now each week, I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an Evergreen Podcasts, Killer Podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. Yeah. All right, let's just get into it. Now we're going to talk about how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
This segment is not intended to be victim-blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode, and we'll just offer up generic tips. All right. uh, I wanted to uh, share RAIN.org, R-A-I-N-N.org. RAIN is the largest anti-sexual violence organization organization in the United States. It has a 24-7 helpline and the number is 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. There is also a RAIN app for your phone with resources, support, self-care tools, and information. Uh, The stats on sexual assault are staggering. Uh, Every 73 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted. And every nine minutes, that victim is a child. Uh, It's also, yeah, it's something you can also donate money to. So if you've got a little extra coin on you um, this holiday season or at any point and you're like, how can I help other than be pissed off at this problem? What can I do to help? That's a way. Um, For those outside the United States, you can contact Safe Helpline at 877-995-5247 or visit safehelpline.org. And those uh, links and phone numbers will be in our description box. Thank you. Hey, you are welcome, Beth. And you are welcome, (laughs) listener. Hey, Fruities. We got you. Uh, now, <laughs> now we're going to get out to the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any uh, true crime goodies or any content about or by any marginalized or othered groups. Uh, so I wanted to shout out the Nutcracker because Jesus is the reason for the reason. Yeah, yes, he, oh, yes, he is. Oh, yes, he is. Yeah, because it's holiday season. Right, right. And it's called actually the Nutcracker and the Four Realms. It's on Disney Plus. And check this out. The Nutcracker is a black guy. Wow. Morgan Freeman is in it. And Misty Copeland, the world famous black ballerina. Wow. Uh, the prima ballerina is in it too, y'all. And it's a great holiday watch for the whole family. Um, nice. And puts you in a real, real good mood. I'm going to have to watch that uh, with my uh, daughter and my grandson. Oh my God. It is awesome. It is fantastic. It reminds me of, you remember when Cinderella was black and it yeah. was on TV and Brandy was yeah. Cinderella and Whitney Houston was her fairy godmother and the lady from Babs who just died unfortunately this week was like one of the evil steps is I mean it, it that's that's how this made me it's feel exciting it's, yeah it's exciting and I feel like it's memorable um also time on Amazon Prime and it's about what it's like for an American family they follow a black family but I think any American family um could relate to this family as they go through life um with a family member and a parent incarcerated for two decades um wow it's really good so they follow the family throughout the two decades or yeah well the, the mom um just loved her camcorder in the 90s. Oh, okay. And so there's okay. there's a lot of footage of her and her family um you know while she's pregnant with some of her kids and then um it flashes forward to like her kids like graduating from high school and college and oh, wow. and spoiler alert, you know, it the guy is not in prison forever. Um and it, there's a lot of in between, but it's re- it really sort of humanizes the experience of having um somebody incarcerated in your family yeah really really good all right yeah well, thank you you're welcome what do you got um i can't remember if we shouted out the podcast dr death before yes the old season but not the new one yeah hit me <laughs> yep now we got a season two hell yeah so season one was about a spine doctor who fucked people up mm-hmm. season two is about an oncologist named farid fata uh-huh. and yeah he also fucked people up so <laughs> Is it out already? Is it out? Yeah, it's out. Oh my God, I'm so excited. Yep. Okay, talk to you later. Bye. <laughs> and so yeah, surprised. it's 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 fascinating. Ooh. I mean, it's it's tragic, but um, uh, it's just you just can't believe it, you know. Yeah. Oh man, I thank you so much. I have been <laughs> hearing promos and like looking at my feed. It's not there, but you say it's, it's out. not there. Okay. Well, it's out. Yeah, because I've listened to it, so oh. it's there. Season two, Dr. Fata. Okay, thank you so much. 
much. <laughs> You're I'm welcome. So happy. Okay. Well, that is all for today. Uh, where can the people find us, Ben? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App. Or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment, and even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. Yeah, and buy us a coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we have a link on our our, uh, website now. It says uh, buy us a coffee, and it's uh, an app you can donate, uh, you know, a few dollars here and there. Yes. And don't think I didn't forget about you, Coffee Donuts, because you're going to get a shout out, too. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident. That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Three AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. Let's go.